Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series called Jesus Goes Global, let's look in our Bibles at Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 26, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, A War of Wills. We've all heard the expression, a war of wills. Now, you might imagine a mother faced off against a two-year-old and the child you know, won't eat his or her vegetables and demands ice cream. And the mother is determined there will be no dessert until the healthy food is consumed. And so the child crosses his or her arms and shouts, no. <laughs> See, that's a war of wills. And, and by the way, all moms and dads, that's a war that you must win or that child is going to become a 13-year-old terrorist in the future. (laughs) That's beside the point right now. I merely want to describe an example of a war of wills. You know, sometimes we refer to that same phenomenon as a Texas standoff. Now, if I understand the image of a Texas standoff correctly, it is two men locked in battle, neither side willing to quit, and neither side able to win. You know, if they both draw their weapons, it'll be disaster for them both. It's also a war of wills, and that one looks like it's going to end badly. You know, most of us who are Christians don't like those images. We've been taught that the Lord's servant must not quarrel. You know, we've also been taught to love our enemies and even to do good to those who persecute us. We don't want to stand off at all. We want reasonableness and graciousness. We want a way forward in love. But whether you like it or not, there are battles that must be fought if evil is not to win the day. You know, some battles will be a battle of wills, and that's what we find in the end of Acts chapter 5. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling religious and civil authority, have ordered Peter and John that all preaching in the name of Jesus is to stop, and that was evil. You know, I've already made the case that in these circumstances, Christians will have to disobey their government. Look, Christians aren't revolutionaries. We don't riot in the streets. Indeed, the Bible gives us a very clear direction that we live in obedience to those in power over us. But the Bible is also clear that if the government demands we violate our faith, we cannot do so. You know, in one country in the world today, there's a state-sanctioned church that is allowed to exist legally, but the government places restrictions on what can and can't be preached there. I mean, one example, those churches may not speak on the second coming of our Lord. See, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, You'll simply not comply. You want to tell your government you're looking to honor their authority, but if it comes down to denying something essential in your faith, you just won't do so. Think about our culture. Let's say we're given an order that we must not preach on sexual faithfulness, a faithfulness that exists in marriage only between one man and one woman. Let's let's just say that this exclusive use of the gift of sex is deemed hateful in the wider culture. Again, We come to a battle of wills, but with all battle of wills between Christians who know that faithfulness to our Lord trumps everything, we seek to win that battle not through acts of aggression, but by demonstrating our unwillingness to comply with any law that demands we compromise our faith. That is, Christians will say to governments that demand we deny Christ in some fashion. We're going to carry on as before, and if it comes to it, We're willing to suffer for our faith. We want to say that Christ means more to us than life or comfort or freedom or anything else. 
That then can be a Texas standoff or a battle of wills. We won't move on this. We won't negotiate. We aren't going to look for middle ground. We're going to stand with Christ regardless of the cost. You know, in Luke's account, the churches in Jerusalem have grown to include 5,000 men, and by our counting, we would have to assume that once the women and children are also counted, it's grown to 20,000. And with that, the Christian movement was in danger of simply overrunning the entire city. And so the Sanhedrin, that is the religious and political ruling council, well, they'd already ruled that Peter and John were no longer to preach in the name of Jesus. So the war of wills has begun. So let's read now Acts 5, 12 to 16. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. These people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed. Well, instead of launching straight into round two of the apostles and the growing Christian church versus the Sanhedrin, that is the ruling council, Luke pauses in the narrative and tells us how the church is now doing. See, he wants us to see the effectiveness of the early church. And notice first how Luke draws our attention to the miracles that are done by the hands of the apostles. You know, Luke simply says, many signs and wonders were regularly done, that is, with frequency, constantly. You know, it all started with one outstanding miracle when a man who's lame from birth is healed. And this was done, of course, right at the main entrance of the temple where there were crowds of people watching. Now that one miracle is being reproduced in countless settings throughout the city. All 12 apostles are busy. They're preaching the gospel. They're praying for people. And the next thing that attracts our attention is that the believers used to have regular meetings, Luke says, in Solomon's portico. You know, according to Jewish historian Josephus, that was a very large porch built on the east of the temple itself near the court of the Gentiles, and it was covered. So if it rained, you were protected, but it was open and the roof was supported by massive 40-foot columns, and it was long enough that it stretched all along the eastern wall of the temple. And so it's clear to see that the meeting of great crowds of Christians was hardly carried on in secret. So you've got large gatherings. You've got well-known and publicized miracles. Well, what else is going on? You know, at first glance, it seems like verse 13 and 14 contradict each other. You know, on the one hand, verse 13 tells us that no one dared join them, and that's because of the death of Ananias and Sapphira. And people seem to understand that God demanded holiness of these people. And so anyone who wasn't ready for that kind of a commitment was just not willing to join. And yet, verse 14 says that believers were added multitudes, Luke says, of men and women. You know, that seems to tell us that in spite of the great commitment that was required, People were constantly converting. See, I noticed several things here. You know, for the first time in the account of Acts, Luke doesn't actually give us a number. You know, it's as if he's saying that he's losing track. The church is growing so fast, he, at this point in time, doesn't actually know what the number is. They are so many. You know, second, whereas in the past, Luke told us of the men that believe now, he's very explicit. He says both men and women. 
See, he wants us to know that the faith is attracting both men and women. The message of the gospel communicates very well to both the masculine and the feminine soul. And third, we should also notice that the demand for holiness was a deterrent to some, to be sure, but it was a draw to others. You know, there's a lesson here that must not be missed. See, adapting the message of Jesus and trying to make the message of Jesus more acceptable to the thought systems of the world doesn't actually grow the church. You know, some of us are worried that if we insist on biblical faithfulness, the church is going to become less attractive. And Luke tells us, actually, the opposite is the case. You know, Luke isn't saying that the church should get locked into outdated forms that are irrelevant to people. So don't make that mistake. And I say this because there are some who simply misunderstand what's going on here. You know, there are people who look at the book of Acts and they say, look, let's not make any changes in the way things have always been done in our church. That's not what Luke is talking about. Instead, the early church insisted on personal holiness. That's the issue here. They insisted on repentance of all known sin. They insisted on biblical faithfulness. And that's the point I'm trying to make. Insistence on holiness of all God's people. It's going to drive some away, but it's going to make the message of the gospel more attractive because it's authentic. See, finally, Luke wants us to note that the healing ministry of the apostles attracted not just the people of Jerusalem. It's now drawing people from the surrounding towns and villages who are hearing about it, and they're bringing their sick into the city. Now, here we need to pause and we need to reflect on something that I think is crucial. Is this what the church was always to look like, or is this superabundance of miracles unique to the apostolic era? See, we do know that as the rest of the New Testament unfolds, not everyone was healed. I mean, Paul himself spoke of his own thorn in the flesh. When Paul writes to Timothy, he tells him to drink a bit of wine because Timothy's got constant gut issues. Not everyone's being healed. So it seems to me that the overwhelming healings that happen here are unique to this moment in time. First, because the apostles are given a superabundance of miracles, and second, because this is a unique time in which the church is being birthed. Our world is confusing. Every place we turn, there are new rules and protocols. The daily news can be baffling and disturbing, and we can clearly see that there are people suffering from fear, not knowing who they can trust or or where they can find truth. Our world has never needed us to be clear on what is foundational and what is true. As a friend of Back to the Bible Canada, we know that you care about trustworthy, verse-by-verse Bible teaching. Together with you, anyone seeking to know and better understand the God of the Bible and the significance of a relationship with Jesus will find accessible, relevant, and trustworthy Bible teaching through a dynamic range of mediums and resources. To know more or to offer a gift to support this cause, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of Dr. Neufeld's series, Bible teaching you can trust. Peter and John have been warned that they are to cease all preaching in the name of Jesus. And clearly we see now they weren't intimidated. You know, if the Sanhedrin had given them orders to cease and desist, well, clearly the apostles were duly ignoring that order. 
You know, they weren't striking out at the Sanhedrin, but neither were they obeying them. So we have a battle of wills. Acts 5, 17 and 18 says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. You know, the phrase, the high priest rose up, is a picture of him as if, you know, as he's sitting in some kind of a chair, and then suddenly he stands up, and the implication is that he's not going to put up with this anymore. He's, he's going to go into action. Those who are ready to back him up immediately, says Luke, are the party of the Sadducees. That's the aristocracy that worked very closely with the Roman government. These are the people that denied the resurrection. These are the people that denied a literal Messiah. And they were much more interested in maintaining their power base in both Jerusalem and the rest of Israel than in what the church had to say. See, because the church is growing at such speed, it's clear that the Sanhedrin is losing control. And Luke says that the high priest was actually filled with jealousy, which, you know, it's an interesting way to put this. What motivates him is that the city will no longer look to him for leadership. And it's this, this attack on his position of authority that leads him to this sense of rage that that action must be done right now. And he acts out of personal rage, great vindictiveness. He's taking the growth of the church very personally. You know, verse 18 says that the party of the Sadducees, they take the lead and put the apostles in prison. And I hope you're paying attention. You know, the last time it was just Peter and John. This time, all 12 are searched out. Every one of them are arrested and thrown into prison. That, if you think about it, could have been quite a blow to the early church. All of their leaders are in jail. And by the way, that still happens all around the world. You know, when the Christian faith seems to be a threat to some, it's always the leaders who are targeted, trusting that the chaos that follows is going to tear the rest of the church apart. Now, presumably, this must have happened sometime in the afternoon, and it would have meant they would have spent the night in prison. And furthermore, it would seem that the place where they were incarcerated was probably different from the earlier arrest of Peter and John. You know, back in chapter 4, When Peter and John are arrested, Luke simply says that they're kept in custody. But here, he says they're put in the public prison. You know, that means that they were housed with criminals of every kind, thieves, murderers, the like, and it would have been pretty rough stuff. You know, this time it seems that matters are far more severe than before. So let's keep reading Acts 5, 19 to 21a. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. See, I love this part because if you read through Acts, you're going to find that on a number of occasions, the Lord, here, by the way, I think when Luke says the Lord, he's referring to Jesus himself opens the prison doors. If we go forward to Acts 12, we're going to read of an angel who unlocks the prison and releases Peter. Go forward again to Acts 16, and you're going to find Paul and Silas in prison. In Philippi, there's a great earthquake. It's so violent that the prison doors are open. And given what the Bible teaches about the sovereignty of God over all things, you know, it doesn't matter if it's an angel or an earthquake. I mean, all things are from God. Now, here in Acts 5, Luke doesn't give us any of the details. The Lord Jesus opens the doors. He gives the apostles a message. Don't you run away. Don't you try to avoid future arrest. Don't mount a strong backlash against the Sadducees. 
Just go back to the temple area and get back to preaching the gospel. That's what you're supposed to do. (laughs) That's a message for all of us who want to use the church for political advantage. None of that in Acts. Don't take political power as the message of the church. Just preach the gospel and don't stop. And that's exactly what they do. It's daybreak now, and the twelve are in the temple compound, and they're teaching just the way they always did. And clearly, here's a battle of wills. One group says, stop. The other group ignores it and just keeps going. I say this because our translation says they began to teach. The Greek verb is in the imperfect tense. It simply means that they just kept on doing what they had done before and the day before that. So let's keep reading Acts 5, 21b to 26. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. See, we remember here what led to the arrest. Luke told us that the high priest rose up, that is, suddenly he's moved to action. Now, the very next morning after the arrest, the high priest is ready to move very quickly and decisively. So we know that at this moment, He doesn't know the apostles are in the temple. That's because this hearing would not have happened at the temple grounds. And and Luke also says that the assembled senate, which is a word that's used here, actually refers to the elders, the community leaders in Jerusalem. So clearly the high priest wants no rebellion from any leading men in Israel. His first act is to bring the 12 before the council and to question them. So he sends the officers to bring out the prisoners, and they come back, and they're shocked. The entire prison is secure, except the 12 are not there. Now, one soul has got an explanation as to how that might have happened. Luke then says, at this news, the chief priests and the captain of the temple are perplexed. That is to say, they can find no rational explanation for this. It makes no sense at all. Now, of course, if they had thought about it, They might have suspected that something was underfoot. I mean, not long before this, these people had crucified Jesus, and now his tomb was empty. I mean, if the dead Jesus can escape from the tomb, it would be far less perplexing if these 12 men were to escape from a locked prison. But of course, you know, these men in the Sanhedrin are busy denying the resurrection of Jesus, and it's getting harder to deny the miracles all the time. These are clearly remarkable days. But the entire matter must have been unsettling and embarrassing. I mean, having assembled a very important group of people, the high priest is now left standing red-faced in front of them all with missing prisoners. I mean, what kind of a court is this? And you could almost hear the rumbling of voices and people talking to each other and wondering what's going on. You know, at that moment, someone enters the council and says, look, those 12 men, you know, those apostles of Jesus? They're where they normally are. They're, they're teaching the people just like they've been doing every single day. So they sent men to get them, and amazingly, they just come. Well, now, if the apostles were going to be brought before the Sanhedrin anyway, 
I mean, what, why, why would the Lord open the doors of the prison? I mean, either way, weren't they going to end up before the nation's Supreme Court that day? But now you notice there's a change. You know, the Sanhedrin can no longer do this privately, arrest them in the late afternoon, and then quickly try them in the morning. Now they have to go and do something in broad daylight before the people. You know, Luke said that if they had tried to take them by force, the people would have stoned them. That's how high the passions had gone. And so when the 12 are brought before the Supreme Court, it looks and feels very different now. Everyone knows what's happening. And clearly, even while the 12 are now on trial, it it should have been clear that these men are not going to back down. It is, as I have said, it is now a Texas standoff. It's a battle of wills. Neither side is willing to give. Christians shouldn't seek to overthrow or to prevent the government from functioning according to God's ordained will. However, Christians should never be intimidated either. It's because we know that Jesus Christ is Lord in the end of the day. Now, not to be intimidated, that's a tall order, and and you might think it's impossible not to be intimidated. But please remember that these 12 had just seen Jesus raised from the dead. What power could the Sanhedrin possibly have? Indeed, shouldn't we come to the same conclusion? We know that our Lord and Savior has been raised from the dead. What can men do to us? We will continue to do what Christ calls us to do. If there is a war of wills, we will be gracious, but we will continue to do the work that Christ has called us to do. John, let me ask you a question. I think it's relevant for today. Are there times when Christians ought to disobey the government? For instance, would it be right for Christians to disobey the direction of the government to stop meeting as a church as they have in these days of pandemic? Yeah, I, <laughs> well, that's two questions. I mean, obviously, I mean, our mindset is, is to obey wherever we can, but of course we can't always obey the government. Now, in terms of COVID, let me say this. Um, we need to remember that our job is to be loving. And if we are to have meetings in such a way that endanger the wider public, we're not being loving. And in that sense, we're not doing what Christ wants us to do. So in, in this case of COVID, Um, You know, government, uh, basically, it's health concerns. Um, We ought to have those same health concerns. I think we ought to meet again, but we need to make sure that we do it safely. That's the key. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, Jesus Goes Global, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you been considering joining us for the 2021 Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience? Well, after much consideration and prayer, the ministry has decided that we'll be postponing our next Israel experience to 2022. You'll understand why with so much uncertainty in our world right now. The exciting news is that those who have been nervous or reluctant to jump on board have a new window of opportunity. Join us in Israel April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, and consider adding to your experience our extension to Jordan May 2nd to May 7th, 2022. This will definitely be a journey of a lifetime. Register soon because even though the date is a little ways away, the space is limited. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust.